What's up, y'all? This is John Lawrence with Anesthesia Guidebook. This is episode number 82, How Change Management Can Build Value. Randy Moore and Desiree Chapel join me in this episode to talk about change management in healthcare. They're both on the leadership team with North Star Anesthesia, which provides perioperative services at over 200 facilities across 20 states. This conversation focuses on how leaders can navigate change, develop culture, and build successful anesthesia practices. We discuss the challenges facing anesthesia providers right now after two years of the COVID-19 pandemic and what market forces are at play, including provider shortages, pressure from reduced reimbursement rates, and lower surgical volumes. This episode will be relevant for any anesthesia provider who's looking to build value in their career, and especially relevant for those practice managers, owners, leaders, and entrepreneurs who want and need to know how to navigate change, find sustainable and deliberate growth, and develop cultures where providers want to invest their careers. Now, let me tell you about these folks, and then we're going to get right to the show. Desiree Chapel is the Vice President of Clinical Quality at Northstar. She has an extensive background in education and quality improvement in anesthesia, and she's the managing editor and lead anchor of Top Med Talk, a podcast on anesthesia, critical care, and perioperative medicine with nearly 1,600 episodes. She is also adjunct faculty for the Acute Pain Management Fellowship at Middle Tennessee School of Anesthesia and serves on the board of directors for the American Society for Enhanced Recovery. Desiree received her Master of Science in Nursing Anesthesia from Texas Wesleyan University. Dr. Randy Moore is the Chief Anesthetist Officer at North Star Anesthesia, and he recently left his role as the Chief Executive Officer of the American Association of Nurse Anesthesiology and has a long background in organizational leadership. He retired as a major in the United States Army after 22 years, where he served as an active duty CRNA with tours in Afghanistan at forward surgical bases. His doctorate of nursing practice is from the University of Alabama, his MBA from Southern Illinois University, and Master of Science in Nursing, where he received his anesthesia training, was at Bradley University. So I really enjoyed speaking with Randy and Desiree. I think you're going to enjoy this podcast. We cover so much ground in terms of the context of healthcare right now, how anesthesia providers are doing, where practices are heading, how we can build for sustainable growth in the future, how how we can attract and retain talent in our anesthesia groups. And so wherever you are in your anesthesia practice, whether you're a clinical leader, a staff CRNA or physician anesthesiologist or a business owner and entrepreneur, this show has definitely got something for you. So I hope you enjoy it. As always, drop your comments on the website. Shoot me an email, john at anesthesiaguidebook.com. Uh, Leave your questions or comments on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you find the Anesthesia Guidebook, and drop us a review on Apple Podcasts so that other people know what kind of value you're getting from this show. And with that, let's get to the show. Randy and Desiree, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm really excited to speak with you today. Awesome to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you both are involved with North Star Anesthesia. And for the listeners, I wonder if you would just each walk us through a brief background of what your role is with North Star and a little bit about your professional background outside of North Star. Sure. Thank you so much, John, for having us on your podcast. This is a great opportunity uh, to share what we're doing in North Star Anesthesia and to talk to a fellow colleague, a CRNA, doing a really awesome podcast. So thank you for everything that you do. Oh, thank you. Um, now, 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it's great. Uh, so Desiree Chapel, I'm a CRNA from Louisville, Kentucky. I've been in practice almost 15 years now. Started out private practice for a very long time in a great little community facility. Um, got involved in enhanced recovery after surgery. So the change uh, quality QI project, quality improvement project with my small little group and really got into the whole change management idea, um, as well as you know project management and leadership. And so I took that and started getting involved on a national level in different multidisciplinary groups. And through all of that experience, I got involved with an organization, educational organization called EBPOM, Evidence-Based Perioperative Medicine, which has been around for about 25 years over in the UK and for about five years now here in the US. Um, and through that, I actually started my own podcast called Top Med Talk with uh, an anesthetist or an anesthesiologist from the UK. And so we've been going for about five years where we talk about everything in perioperative medicine from healthcare economics all the way down to translating evidence into practice. So did that for a while. And through that, I learned so much about quality and the value, uh, value-based care models and the value of what we are delivering in anesthesia and really wanted to put everything that I had learned into practice. And so I joined North Star in 2020 and right in the middle of COVID uh, as vice president of clinical quality. And I've been there for the last two years. I'm literally on my two-year anniversary this week. Oh, congrats. And it's been such a, yeah, thanks. It's been such a great experience to be involved. Um, I still do clinical practice, but I also work with our chief quality officer to impact the quality of care of over a million and a half surgeries a year. Wow, that's awesome. And Randy, tell us a little bit about your role with North Star and some of your background. Yeah, so I've been at North Star for, I don't know, 10, 10 or so months. I started back in September. Uh, before that, I did a four-year tour of duty as CEO of the American <laughs> Association of Nurse Anesthetists, now known as the American Association of Nursing Anesthesiology. And so prior to that, I served on the board for about three years, and then um, in parallel to that, I've moved into hospital leadership and uh, we got really bit by the leadership bug and thought that I was going to be a hospital CEO, and then uh, life happened, and uh, Wanda Wilson, my predecessor at AANA, decided she was going to retire. Somehow, through some strange confluence of events, I became the CEO uh, and uh, really enjoyed it. And very proud of the work that we did at the ANA for four years, but I was also coming to the realization pretty quickly that it was time for me to move on and do something else. And I was really, I can, I mean, I might be one of the, the early, probably on the bleeding edge of the great resignation. Right. Right. Where, yeah. So where, you know, COVID-19 hit, everybody started to think about what, Hey, what's life all about? And am I doing the right work and what, how things could how or, or, you know, possibly should things look different for me professionally. And then right about that time, I started to have conversations with Adam Spiegel, who is the CEO at North Star. And, and again, through a strange confluence of events, here I am, the chief anesthetist officer at North Star. So my job, you know, is really focused on positioning North Star as the destination employer for nurse anesthetists. And I, I, I help make that happen. Uh, through really running at leadership performance, clinical leadership performance, leadership development, leadership accountability, uh, moving culture 
uh, at sites to make sure that those clinical sites are are attractive. You know, developing relationships in the industry with nurse anesthesia program directors, optimizing our sites for training nurse anesthetists. And, uh, you know, I'm in business development, which is super fun and exciting. And we can talk about that maybe. And uh, a few other things that I do maybe off the side of my desk. Uh, and I'm still learning into my role and shaping it as we speak. My role is evolving uh, almost weekly. That's remarkable. Uh, well, there's so many things that I could ask both of you about your respective careers. So maybe this will be the first in a series. I don't know. I might have to the, chase both of you down in the future to talk about ERAS and AANA and you know other topics uh, that I know that both of you could spin off and, and speak for hours on. So uh, help the listeners understand a little bit. I mean, North Star is a is not an uncommon name in the anesthesia world, but for those who may not be familiar with it, tell us about the scope of North Star. I mean, how many how many states are you in? How many providers do you have? Uh, clinical sites, or how how do you talk about North Star in terms of its scope? Yeah, so you know, we're definitely when people talk about the large anesthesia management companies, and I get that that's you know sometimes people aren't really happy about large anesthesia management companies, and I actually get it. I mean, because there are there, there's some bad ones out there, <laughs> to be honest with you, because I've interacted with them. And I guess bad's probably a relative term. Uh, but we're definitely in that category of large anesthesia management companies that are on, you know, we're definitely on a growth trajectory. So, you know, we're, we're in north of 20 states, probably 22 or 23 states. I should know that answer, by the way. I know that. Uh, and over 200 facilities, including our, you know, our ASC footprint. And uh, we're growing. Uh, we're growing pretty pretty exponentially, and when you look at the anesthesia landscape, uh, the the what's feeding a lot of our growth uh, is a lot of factors that are impacting healthcare. Right, so you look at supply and demand issues with clinicians, you look at the cost of of, of providing healthcare, the reimbursement challenges, all of that's creating a lot of disruption in the market, and fortunately. North Star is positioned really well to navigate through that um, because we've got a great executive leadership team and we've got great strategy and and we are uh, consistently doing the right thing for clinicians. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting time to be in leadership and healthcare period, uh, but it's certainly exciting and interesting and stress inducing uh, to be involved in a company that's scaling <laughs> in an environment of significant disruption. But it's it's fun. And these are fun problems to solve. I would, and just to add to that quickly, like exactly what Randy had said, you know, I mean, we are growing, but to to take it back a little bit, because I don't know if a lot of people understand the history of North Star. We were actually started by an anesthesiologist and a nurse anesthetist, a CRNA. And that really is our model. And that is our driving force, our, and no pun intended, our North Star, that we work collaboratively together. Um, and that is different in every site, right? So we try and model our our care of our patients to optimize the sites that we're at. So we have many different models. We work in CRNA-only practices. We will have MD-only practices. We have anesthesia care team models. We have some that we say that, and that's very loose. You know, so we, we do what we need to to take care of patients, but this truly is a collaborative um, a collaborative approach to, to anesthesia care. And I think that we live that out in our leadership team. We live that out every day um, on the ground at all of our different sites. And so that's what I always really want people to know about North Star Anesthesia as well, is that 
you know, this is where we've come from. And they have held held true to that, even despite all the changes in the, the healthcare environment over the years, we still hold true to that. Yeah, that's great. Well, we were going to talk about uh, change management in healthcare, which is a huge topic. It's a it's a broad topic. You could spin off and talk about many different subtopics on that. But in terms of change management, I mean, you both bring a wealth of experience, you know, from the quality improvement side of things to the business and trade association side of things. So, in your current roles, I mean, where do you see change management happening with Northstar in the biggest ways right now? I know Desiree is an expert in this because she is in the business of changing human behavior relative to clinical decision making, which might be one of the most difficult things to do. Right, <laughs> like, right. Yeah, you know, find a CRNA who's been doing this for twenty years and then asking him or her to do it different uh, differently is 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 fun, right? So <laughs> I'll I'll let her expound on that. Mine's relative, Randy. <laughs> I mean, the the other piece, you know, like I I I kind of think leadership is like like that's what we do is, is implement change. Uh, and, and so, and acknowledging that, you know, this is like not a surprise to anyone, but people typically don't like change and they, and they don't like to change and they don't like their environment to change because it creates uncertainty and uncertainty is, promotes fear. And so my job and Desiree's job, and we come at this from different directions, certainly because we have different outcomes, uh, or focus is really around like we have to change the company the you know the the environment demands change and so i've spent a lot of time developing change you know strategy which will require change and then i sell it uh, to people and then we go and we do it and so i think one of those things that you know is really important to call out for nurse anesthetists and i'm put anesthesiologists in the same category is that, you know, we are not always predisposed to change or right. wanting to change. Uh, but um, what we do in leadership, it requires a strong orientation towards change management and knowing how to do it well. And it's actually really difficult to do well. Yeah. Changing, especially if you're trying to change things at scale, it requires, it's a science and an art, and it requires a pretty deep level of expertise in psychology and human behavior and motivation theory. Well, I think emotional yeah. intelligence is, is so key uh, in any role that you're in, whether or not you're a, you know, you're a staff anesthesia provider trying to connect with your patient in pre-op before they go in for a risky surgery, or if you're the, you know, one of the leaders of a national anesthesia organization, uh, you know, emotional intelligence is key. Helping people navigate change is key. Uh, Desiree, I, I, I'm interested, you know, in reading about ERAS over the years, I came across a stat that, that said that it takes upwards of 17 years for clinicians to integrate new evidence-based medicine uh, practices into mainstream practice. 17 years, which is crazy, which speaks to how we we really don't like changing. So, I mean, what what's up I've with decided that? that I figure it's more around 25 years. 25 uh, years? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's when the first ERAS literature was published. No, it is. It's hard. Well, I think part of it is, well, not part of it. The large part of it is human nature, right? So when I give lectures on change management, one of the first things I show, the first image is not the change management curve, but it's the Kubler-Ross stages of grief. Nice. Right? Because that's really what we... <laughs> that's what we go through in change management. Like someone comes to most of the group. And, and if you think about 
you know, where everybody falls on the curve of adoption of change, right? There's the early adopters, the ones that love like any kind of technology, anything new, which that's, I would probably be on that side of the curve versus the laggards who still are hanging on to flip phones and everything else, right? So um, if you think about that, and then you look at the grieving process, it's the like it's the same thing when you go into change management. Yeah. Like you say, okay, hey guys, so we have this great new whatever we're doing, you know, QI project or whatever, and you're going to have your early adopters that are super excited, but for the majority of people, they're going to you know have pushback. And I think utilizing that emotional intelligence that you just talked about to understand that when you're first going in is one of the first things. And I think as a leader, leaders often know that. The problem is, I believe, not just in you know the nurse anesthesia world, um, anesthesia in general or healthcare in general, and honestly, let's think about it, like in any organizational type change, is that most of the time we're not taught that. Like this is not something that we talk about whenever we're in our uh, going through a school, yeah. right? And going through our training, we we're not taught. We're taught how to intubate somebody. We're taught how you know the, the pharmacology of drugs. We're taught those things, um, and I think we're getting a little bit more. And, and Randy probably can attest to this more, and he has his finger on the pulse of this more than I do. But you know, I think we're getting a little bit more into the business of anesthesia and learning about that. But when it comes to true leadership and change management. We still are not taught that. And anesthesiologists are not taught that. And a lot of healthcare executives are not taught that. And so I feel like that's where we really are missing the mark. And one of the things that Randy and I vehemently agree on (laughs) when we are talking about leadership within Northstar is that we want to prepare our leaders for things like that, right? To understand emotional intelligence, to understand the soft skills that we need, to understand, hey, you're going to talk to your group about hey, we need to tighten things up here a little bit on efficiency or operations, or we're having this new technology that we're implementing. It's You have to go about it the same way. Yeah. Well, and Randy, you know, um, you recently had a conversation with Mike McKinnon and, and put out a couple podcasts with him, which touched on some of these themes, which I think people should go listen to if they haven't already. But one of the themes that you talked about with Mike was how challenging culture is to shape and to set and to change but how important relationships are in that process of developing relationships with uh, with leaders, with staff CRNAs, between a chief CRNA and the physician anesthesiologist, uh, the chief anesthesiologist at a group. You know, someone, someone said recently that healthcare providers are trained, as Desiree, as you were just saying, to be really good healthcare providers, to, to be good at doing medicine, but they're not trained in healthcare. We're not trained to understand how the business models work, the things that are at play. We're good at understanding the pharmacology and how to intubate people and how to move people from pre-op to PACU, but really it's rare to have a really solid fundamental understanding of you know, navigating the healthcare environment as clinicians, but yet it's those clinicians who grow to become business leaders. So how do you help people navigate change in those environments? I think there's two things I would call out that really help people accelerate their leadership impact. And one is what you call you were referencing this is like you need to know the context. You need to understand where you fit within the broader ecosystem that you're in, right? So like, what what are the nuts and bolts of the business? Like who has influence? How do you develop influence? How do you position yourself in a way that you can take your good ideas and translate those into 
solutions that other people will buy into. The other thing is beyond kind of context setting and having that, that knowledge is where I see people get stuck, and I see this particularly for nurse anesthetists, is that because we are trained and educated to be very reactive. So we're in an operating room and something happens, and of course it requires immediate and decisive intervention, right? So someone's blood pressure drops, you have a difficult airway, that's great. Uh, those skills are actually counterproductive and harmful in the boardroom. Or when you find yourself talking to a CEO or where you find yourself leading a large organization, it, those, those kinds of behaviors, that short-term kind of instant gratification orientation is not what's going to be successful, is not going to position you to be successful. So I really try to encourage people who want to go from being a, a competent manager to being a maybe an enterprise level executive to think about and study and inculcate the concept of systems thinking into your work and understanding this is a bit contextual too is like everything is interrelated and if you want to change something it's like having the good ideas actually that's not that important it's your ability to influence other people to accept your solutions and change their behaviors, that requires systems thinking and understanding like how, okay, and I say this all the time and I'm sure Desiree is gonna roll her eyes when I say it, but you know, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. That's systems thinking. So you gotta do the work on the front end to make sure that you've done the right diagnosis, you've developed the right solutions, you've developed the relationships, and you've ripened the environment so that when you go and do that thing, it will be successful. What I learned early in my leadership career is like, oh, I got the great idea. Let me kick the door in and jam it down everyone's throat. And guess what? That like the the like the, there's somewhere around a zero percent probability you're going to be successful. <laughs> so it is around really orienting yourself to looking at patterns, getting to the what I call the bottom of the iceberg in systems thinking, and those are where those definitive transformational solutions occur and is a very different skill set than what we're taught in nursing school or medical school or anesthesia residency. Well, how do you, how do you, go ahead. No, I was going to say to Randy's point, you know, a lot of people um, in nursing anesthesia in um, nursing for that matter, you know, I mean, you kind of feel like my job is to go to work. This is what I do, you know, and, and this is what I've been taught to do. And you don't really think outside the box. The good news is, is that the, everything that Randy just talked about, those are skills that can be learned, right? Emotional intelligence is a little bit more difficult. I think there's a lot, there's a process of learning, but one thing that gets me really excited, and especially since Randy's come on board and we're working together on some of these things and talking about leadership uh, and change management within North Star is that we have a lot of individuals that are super smart. They're very, so very intelligent. They're great managers. They're, they're great at their jobs. But they also have really great soft skills and emotional intelligence, but it just needs to be shaped and formed. And we need to, like, they need to realize the potential so then they can work on that and grow. And all of us are usually really high performers. So if you tell somebody that, the the problem is trying to figure out, you know, how to tap into that for those people um, and, and kind of getting them into the path to open that world up for them. I think that's where 
you know, the systems thinking comes in and, you know, trying to teach somebody that. And then for them to be able to then put that into practice and realize, hey, this is something I can do. And then their leadership path completely expands and opens up for them. So that's one thing that I kind of am always thinking about when we talk about all these different things. It's like, how do we get people to realize that you can learn this and you can use those, all that, you know, all those skills that you've worked in the OR with your surgeons and not the necessarily reacting to the drugs, but some of the other things that you've done in your career and your profession as, as a nursing anesthesia. Yeah, for sure. Randy, I love the slowest, smooth, smoothest, fast. That's one of the mantras that I use all the time. Uh, and, you know, for both of you, man, how, how do you help people, whether it's a quality initiative or a business decision, how do you help, you know, get people around a shared mental model of, you know, where they need to go? You know, how do you create that kind of trajectory or that that expanded possibility in people's minds when maybe they don't see the incentive yet, maybe they maybe they don't have the skills to get there yet themselves, or their organization can't get there. But you need them to understand that there's a better path forward, and we need to make some adjustments and spend some time and development and get there. But how do you sell that kind of new pathway or trajectory to people? So this is going to sound cynical, and I don't mean it to, but I'm going to relate to you what I've read and experienced about human behavior and what drives it. And so Brian Woods, Dr. Brian Woods, one of our colleagues here at North Star, brilliant clinician, business mind. He's got a phrase that I've learned since I've been here, which is called with them, which means what's in it for me. And so when we talk about changing, let's say, let's like, what's the, what's the nastiest problem we have at North Star? It's when there are, there's clear misalignment between the physicians and the CRNAs around what like the practice models or scope of practice, that kind of stuff. That is, that's hard stuff. That is hard stuff that we, that we run at. And so if I show up in a situation and say, all right, docs, we're now going to do A, B, and C, which will be perceived as us taking A, B, and C away from the docs and give them to the nurse anesthetist. That is, it could, we could be successful, but there will be, there will be bloodshed. And it will be a hundred times more difficult than it needs to be. So what I like, what I encourage people to think is using the Brian Woods WIFM acronym is anytime we try to change something, we introduce a new concept, a new model, we want to change scope of practice, whatever it is, we have to understand what motivates everyone at the table and to provide incentives to move in that direction. And so this is like, this is again, like another like game theory. Like, so we got to game this out and say, all right, why? what would motivate an anesthesiologist to be okay with nurse anesthetists doing lead well epidurals? Well, right. We can get there pretty quickly. And those are solvable problems. Where we get into challenges is if we don't understand that human beings are intrinsically self-interested and operate through kind of a fear-based mindset that if something is happening, it jeopardizes, potentially could jeopardize their standing, which 99% of the time is not true, but that's a story they tell themselves. So I think it, it is understanding that we're dealing with human beings and human, and, and you have to, you have to look for the win-win solutions in everything you do. And if you're successful in doing that, you will more likely be successful in the change initiative that you're trying to implement. Yeah. And it, it's funny because it just reminds me, like, again, like when I've talked about change management, when I've talked about enhanced recovery or any other, any other QI thing that we're wanting to do, 
uh, or in actually any kind of change in the practice, as Randy said, it's always the win-win. And I always say the win-win-win-win. So it has to be for everybody across the board, right? It can't just be for a couple people. It has to be for everybody. And the way you do this, and some people may refer to it as manipulation, I like to say it's appealing to whatever, whoever it is that you're talking to. So for instance, in QI, right? It's the multidisciplinary team. It's not just team anesthesia, it's surgeons, it's your hospital execs. It's the same way in model changes and everything else, right? When I go to them to talk to team anesthesia or team surgery, I have to appeal to that group or that person. What And that's my EQ, right? That's the emotional intelligence that I have to say, hey, Randy, I know that you're one of those laggards who's at the back of the bus the whole time, not wanting to do anything. Randy, this is what we're going to do. And this is what it means for you. It's actually going to make your job easier in the long run. We're going to get these people, you know, like whatever it is versus the hospital CEO. It's, you know, it's not about the money, but it's about the money kind of thing. Right. (laughs) So like, let's talk about money. And so, or the CFO. And so it's just about appealing to whomever it is that you're talking about. And that's for any kind of difficult conversation or, you know, conversation that you have to go into where you're wanting to change somebody. Yeah. I think those are really important things. And of course you wouldn't go to the lagger and be like, look, bro, I know you're a lagger, but here we go. (laughs) Oh yeah. God, no! You don't yeah, say that. No, I know, I know. Uh, <laughs> in my mind, yeah, I'm going, I know, right? But uh, yeah, no, like you have. It's you're. A, I mean, in change management, most of the time, you're a cheerleader, yeah. right? You're gonna have to like. And I always say, you know, um, in one of the lectures, I'm like, it's my, it's the chapel five E's, and it's like excitement, engagement. Um, what are the other ones that I have? Excitement, engagement, education, because everybody has to know the why. Um, evaluation of what you're doing. The biggest thing to me is empowerment, right? People want to feel empowered in the decisions that they're making and that I'm not making the decision for them. They're making the decision. That takes a lot of time to figure out how you craft that message, but empower people when you're going into these situations of change. Right. So there's so many things we could talk about. There's so many things that I want to talk about with both of you. And I think you know, from quality to business models. But I think I think one rabbit that we could chase is talking about anesthesia billing models, staffing models, changing those things. And but how do you navigate that challenge? How do you help people change to move towards more efficient ways of doing anesthesia care? Whereas that can often be seen as a threat to the way things have always been done. Yeah, I mean there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> it's and a I, huge I would say yeah. that I, you know, there, if you look across the North Star portfolio, this is a candid moment, we get it right a lot, but there are still areas where we're working on, you know, cultural, operational, physician, CRNA relationship issues. So it's not as if we're immune to these challenges. I think we just happen to be better at addressing them than most companies. I, I would say that, you know, the way that I'm running at this now is that, the single greatest predictor of whether a facility is going to have a healthy culture is the chief CRNA medical director at that facility. And so I go to that immediately all the time. Almost that to the that relationship. Like, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Not only their relation, that relationship, yes, but also their individual performance, uh, their behavior and their performance. Those are the single greatest predictors of whether we're going to have issues or not. And so as let's say it's a new contract, one of the things that you know I've been pushing really hard on since I've been here is we need a strong, competent 
CRNA, chief CRNA in ASAP as soon as possible, who understands what we're trying to do in the, at, with this company culturally. Same thing on the doc side. You know, when we go through these, you know, we're like, who is the medical director that's going to be the ambassador, a cultural ambassador uh, for us? And if we get that right, we're good to go. Then, then all of those other decisions about practice models and scope of practice, they don't get easy, but they get a lot easier. And so that's where I think, you know, you do that well early. And if the other piece, the other side of this is, if you've assessed that you have a chief CRNA who's just not there, who can't develop the relationships and doesn't have the influence or the, the personality or orientation, we got cut bait. Yeah. And, and, and so that's, that's, you know, to me, that's, that's the first and most important step. And everything else is kind of downstream from there and makes, and it makes everything else so much easier. Uh, so I tend to have a very strong orientation to, right? I know it's tough to be a clinical leader today. And the predisposition is to say, well, maybe we should lower our expectations of our clinical leaders. I actually think the opposite is yeah. true. I think we need, and, and that we need to elevate our expectations. And, and if this is not right for you, okay, we'll find you another job. And we'll find someone else who will fill this role because it's such an important predictor of, of what success is going to look like. And what I try to tell people, and I'll shut up, is that like I don't really care how smart you are. That's not that important to me. And I don't care how many degrees you have. And I don't care about your credentials, to be honest with you. What I try to evaluate is, are you able to develop relationships and exert influence in a positive way? If you can, you're a winner. And I don't even care if you never went to graduate school. It doesn't, and because at the end of the day, this leadership is a relationship business. And if you're brilliant and you can't develop relationships, then you should not be in a leadership position. And so that's, that's kind of the way that I would approach some of these tough problems that we're seeing. Yeah. Well, I think that's the, that's the essence of what leadership is. You know, I think so often in the business world, we think that leadership is a position, right? Like you get hired into a leadership position, but leadership, I think fundamentally is, can you influence people? You know, do you have the ability to develop those relationships and exert influence and, and help create change? And oftentimes, you know, I mean, yeah, you probably need to be in a position or a role at some point, but I think for those listeners out there who are wondering about, you know, how to get into, you know, this kind of environment in healthcare where you are helping to change culture and, you know, shape quality initiatives or business practices, you can begin developing your influence uh, as a staff CRNA or as a staff physician anesthesiologist, and then add those skills as you develop in terms of business and management and that kind of stuff. A hundred percent. That's how you grow. I mean, your first, you know, your first moment of doing that is when you start as a nurse or a resident, when you start, you know, growing those relationships with the physicians, with your call, you know, nursing colleagues, your nursing managers, that's when you very, you very first start this, you know, creating that influence. And you've taught, you talk to a, a lot of leaders these days, you know, and it's like, where have you come from? Well, they they come from very humble backgrounds where it's like I was a staff person and I just really was passionate about X and I started, you know, talking to the surgeons or like in my in my particular situation, like when I was involved in enhanced recovery, it wasn't that I just talked to my medical director. We I started having conversations with the CNO, the CFO, the CEO of of our hospital 
where my, and you know, my CRNA colleagues were like, gosh, you talk to him. I'm like, yeah, you know, sure. <laughs> like, why not? I want to tell him what we're doing. And it just kind of, it goes from there. So I think you, you have to grow it kind of organically most of the time. Um, but you know, we're doing that on a daily basis, just to remind everyone listening, like every time you have a conversation with your surgeon or your circulating nurse, you're working on growing, you know, your influence with people. And usually the best relationships and and the best influence that you can have is not through, you know, being angry that someone's bringing the, the case to the room or, you know, getting into it with your surgeon about, X, Y, Z, it's how you navigate, you know, politically and, and savvily through That's not really a word, but you know, your savviness um, when you're, you're uh, communicating, then you grow, then you start to see, well, gosh, like I actually can influence this situation. And I didn't have to be, you know, d- d- um, exerting my power within the room. And that's one thing I remember talking to um, actually Lee Fleischer, he's the CMO for CMS now. He was the chair at UPenn for a long time. And I was talking to him about leadership and growing and, you know, kind of picking his brain as a mentor. And, you know, he said, Desiree, it's power and influence. That's how you become a leader. And he's like, the power part, it's not hard. It's budget. It's, you know, um, managing people and things like that. That's a learned skill that, you know, you can, it's very tangible. You can do that. He goes, the other is influence. And he's like, that's what you have to learn to grow. And he's like, you can't, it can be done. But he's like, those are the two things that you have to think about. And I, to Randy's point, you know, we we want to go with those people who know how to manage and in, in the relationships uh, really, really well. Healthcare right now, it's a crazy time to be in healthcare. I think the pandemic has wrought havoc on healthcare systems from reduced cases and revenue generation, uh, just to the strain of, you know, the stress of being in healthcare. I was reading something recently that workplace violence, like healthcare is one of the highest sectors for experiencing workplace violence. So as we've seen this stress in recent years, there's been like a, a flight of personnel, whether it's OR nurses, periop nurses, techs, uh, I don't know if it's as much within the like CRNA physician anesthesiologist surgeon level, but I feel like perioperative staff are hitting the travel circuit more than ever. So when you talk about like, how do you develop a culture? How do you build a team that's bought in to implementing best practices or moving towards, you know, an efficient practice model perioperatively, what can anesthesia providers do to help support that kind of perioperative culture and help retain people that can help build a strong team at these clinical sites. Um, that, if you could answer that, like, million <laughs> like dollar question, right? million dollar question, billion dollar question. Um, no, I mean, you know, Randy and I and everyone at North Star, this is a daily conversation, literally. I mean, we have we talk about this every day. I, you know, I had heard a figure earlier on in the pandemic that we were losing thirty percent of the nursing workforce they had left, right? And not just left for another job, they left nursing. Right. And then I, I start thinking, I'm like, oh, you know, that's our pipeline right. <laughs> for anesthesia. And then it's like, oh, and then you start to worry about it. I think that what we have to do is, and what we are doing, I believe, is working from the inside, again, as Randy said, to create that culture. You know, to make this more than just about the dollar, even though that's what we all want to talk about all the time, we have to establish the value 
of each provider to one themselves, to our group, to the the hospital, to the hospital system, and to have them understand that, right? It's, we want our providers to be more than a warm body on a seat, Yeah. right? Other groups can do that. And at times that's what we have to do. But we as Northstar, what we're trying to do is create our, our providers as perioperative specialists, right? So we're the ones that come in and add value to what we're doing. That's how I, that's how I, and I've, I believe our colleagues at Northstar feel is that we have to provide more in the value of the anesthesia care that we're delivering. And there's so much professional satisfaction that comes with that, that you can't put a dollar figure on. Right. And so I think that if we turn this on its head to say, yeah, right now we got to get through this time, you know, the storm, we're weathering the storm. But on the other side of it, what have we as North Star empowered our providers with knowledge, education, skill sets, as Randy said, some of these things that we're doing for professional leadership development, that on the other side of this, that it will distinguish our providers to the rest of the anesthesia workforce. And I, I'm all in on that. I think Randy is too. I think we are really wanting to make sure that we do that and start that now. And I think it will be a differentiator for us and, and um, prove to be hopefully successful. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's tough, you know, there's the supply demand imbalance in, in an environment where there's supply demand imbalance and the demand outstrips the supply, then the service or the product becomes more expensive. And, and guess what? CRNAs provide a service. And so we certainly fit within that. What I'll call out is that, and I, I'm going to, ha- I'm going to present to the board of directors, president of North Star, and that my, like my hypothesis on this is that, you know, you have to be competitive when it comes to compensation. Well, guess what? Everybody's in the same ballpark when it comes to compensation, right? So if you go to a mark, any given market, there is not that big of a swing on compensation. So it's a race to the bottom when it comes to compensation. So there's really not much room for differentiation in compensation when it comes to CRNAs and docs, but we're talking about CRNAs today. So where differentiation, the opportunity for differentiation occurs is culture. And I can point to a facility that I was just in last week where I think Desiree does a lot of clinical and spends a lot of time where they are maybe one CRNA down, maybe one. That's unheard of, right? And so like, okay, well, this isn't, a, you know, this is Louisville, Kentucky, Norton downtown, uh, Louisville. What in the hell have they done there to position themselves so that the chief CRNA has a stack of resumes on his desk? It's the yeah. bourbon. The bourbon, right? <laughs> it's the bourbon. So, so don't tell me we can't differentiate. It's just hard. Right. And so, and the, everybody wants to pull the compensation lever because the culture lever is too damn hard to do and requires tough decisions, requires a lot of energy, sustained focus, significant investments and in leadership and tough decisions about who gets to be the leader and who, and who needs to be transitioned out. Tough decisions, you know, tough conversations, decisions around CRNAs and docs and culture and scope. Like all of these things are really hard and no one has wanted to do this for a very long period of time or very few people. And now the chickens have come home to roost. And if you don't run it culture, someone else is and and they're going to eat your lunch. 
And so that's why like we're out there eating people's lunch because we believe that, you know, we're going to be competitive in compensation, but we're going to differentiate with culture. Yeah. It's really interesting. You know, not a lot of differentiation in terms of compensation. So what do you I mean, part of the lead in of the question was people are, are jumping ship to join the travel circuit. And, you know, I've heard from one CRNA business owner in New England who is saying, you know, CRNAs are coming in saying, I need $1,500 a day to work here or two grand a day to work here, but they're only generating, uh, you know, revenue of eight, $900. So, you know, I know subsidies are a big part of the equation in terms of, you know, hospital surgery centers, but for the providers listening, for the CRNAs listening, when they hear provider shortage, I can write my ticket, you know, but like to what point, you know, because yeah, there's a shortage and you can take your services to a number of different companies, but you have to understand, like you said, kind of the the global ecosystem that you're working in. And, you know, there's only so much money to go around, especially when you have challenges in surgical volume. So what would you say to people just around that, just for the providers out there who may be chasing, I don't know, 10%, increase somewhere else, maybe a little bit higher. Is that sustainable? Is that, is that reasonable? I, I, I get it. Like I, I know exactly how much money I make. So I, I'm not going to be like some, like be disingenuous and say, well, it's not about the money. Of course. I mean, it's relevant. It's part of the conversation. Uh, and it's also important to acknowledge that some people for whatever reason or reasons are more oriented towards compensation. Yeah. They, and we can unpack maybe that some other time and it's totally appropriate and I don't have a beef with it at all. Go work, go, go earn. I have no, but at the end of the day, the truth of the matter is there's zero difference between $300,000 a year and $250,000 a year in no, terms it's... of the impact on your lifestyle and on um, your impact as an individual, what you can do, what you can provide for your family. So if you want to work in a terrible clinical environment and for an extra $25 or $50,000 a year, go for it. Yeah. I'm not going to, I'm not going to judge you or criticize you, but most people will say there's, okay, I could walk across the street for $10,000 or more, but they treat those CRNAs like cattle and I'm being treated better here. And yeah, I wish I could make 10,000 and make more a year, or maybe I will, but I think that culture, respecting the people that I work with, being respected by the people I work with is more important. Yeah. And it's, and I'm not here to judge anyone uh, because I've made decisions about compensation too. So I get it. But like, there's a mountain of psychological literature that will tell you once you get to a certain threshold and you're making decisions exclusively off of your compensation – you're going to be a very unhappy individual. Yeah, it's a great point. I've wanted to do just a show specifically on that. I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but I think some of the research, uh, this is pre-pandemic, like 2018 out of Purdue, maybe showed that like North America, over $105,000 average average income for an individual, your return on subjective well-being is not any greater. So all anesthesia providers are well above that. Now, again, if you're the sole breadwinner for a family of five and you got a bunch of mouths to feed at the house, maybe maybe financial decisions are, are more significant for you, but we're doing fine, I think. And so uh, thank, thanks for responding to that. I just wanted to get a little bit of uh, insight and verbiage from y'all on the compensation piece. But I think to kind of close this out, we've talked a lot about culture so far on this podcast. So what would be some of your closing thoughts? I, I, I love what you said, Randy, in terms of like, there's a provider shortage. Uh, compensation is generally 
equitable. You're, you know, you're not going to find like a golden ticket out there where you're making way more bank than somewhere else. Like, you know, I mean, everyone's under downward pressure in terms of reimbursement and, you know, surgical volume is challenging. And so all of those things are at play. So if culture is the great differentiator, what would you say in closing on just like the hallmarks of the things that integrate into building a really strong culture at a particular site? It's really around like, do you, do I have a good manager that treats me well and respects me? If, if you, the answer to that is yes, then you're in a good spot. Do I have a job where I can make a difference most days where I feel like I'm making a difference? Check the box. Do I feel like I have autonomy and agency and I'm respected and I'm treated well? You check those boxes, you're good to go. You've got a dynamic, compelling culture, and you're going to be able to recruit and retain people. The challenge is it's really hard to check all those boxes. <laughs> There's a lot of things that need to come together for that to happen. Usually, you know, we definitely check the compensation box because we have to, but checking some of those other boxes requires some courage, requires uh, sustained effort and focus. And you can't get complacent in this environment and, and because people are going to leave. We see that day in and day out. And it presents huge opportunities for us as a company, uh, but it also presents some challenges too. Desiree, what would you say to that? Um, I mean, I agree. I think that, and I agree whole, wholeheartedly with everything that Randy had said. I feel like, so back to my clinical site where my home base is and why I think it's been successful is that we have a great manager, we have a great leader and what he has done to be the great leader. And, and actually we have two sites in Louisville in both places. We've had just amazing leadership for the last several years. And, and I, I'm not going to lie, like we've struggled. We have struggled at this site, but we have turned it around because what Randy said the managers stuck to their guns. They said, this is the vision that I have for this, you know, for our site. And this is where we want to be. And they held strong to it. And so if they had poison in the well, bad apple culturally, they're gone, you know, or like if someone technically doesn't have the skills, like it's not about the warm body. It's about, we're going to, we all come together to pull because this is the vision of where we want to be. And I think that they did that. And I think that the, the the chief CRNAs, the chief medical directors of the groups align really well and all feel like this is where we need to go. And they empower their group. So it's not about one individual is better than anybody else. They bring, you know, they try and raise the, you know, raise it all boats, raise the ocean, raise all boats kind of thing. <laughs> A rising tide raises and, and all boats. I'm never... I, that's that one. I'm horrible. Yeah, yeah. I'm horrible at these. <laughs> you got to You got to um, come to come up to Portland, Maine. We got a brewery actually, called Rising that's Tide. Right. That's we're we're Rising in on that wavelength. Right. It's yeah. all boats. That's right. I I need to remember. I need to get that. Um. And so I think that I think that's a huge. That's that's where it's going to be too. Is that we realize that we have to do that. And this is not a zero sum game. It's everybody has to win, uh, and everybody has to feel. And you know. I think for all the things that we've been talking about, we talk a lot about CRNAs and CRNA only groups and empowering CRNAs. I mean, we have a ton of CRNA only delivered anesthesia in this country, but we have a ton and Randy would be able to tell you the the numbers of anesthesia care teams. And yeah. we, ha it is the reality of where we work. And we have to understand that, you know, CRNA only practices are 
wonderful and can work really well. MD only practices, they can work in some settings, but for a large majority of us, we're working in team settings where we have to figure out how to make it work. And that's not just empowering a CRNA and, and people may not agree with this, but it's, it's not empowering a CRNA just to say you get full scope of practice right. first day, you know, day one. Right. And it's not telling the, the anesthesiologist, guess what? This is our new new care team model, right? right? So I, I think going in with that emotional intelligence, realizing what you have to do and, and empowering everyone to make you know good decisions and be the best provider that they can, I think to me is where we, where we really can change culture. Yeah, that's well said. I think that I agree with you on that. I think that it's, you know, culture is, is slow to change. But I think if you can create a shared mental model of what a successful group looks like in an anesthesia care team environment, I think everyone can get there. You can build a, a supportive culture where people feel good about the work they do. They feel like the anesthesia care is delivered at a high quality. People feel empowered. People feel like they've got a role and that their job is meaningful. And, you know, that, you know, hopefully nobody's, you know, threatened or feeling like they're not getting what they need out of their career. And ultimately, hopefully the group is also solvent and, you know, financially like reasonable for the hospital where they're working. I think those things, that's like the holy grail, right? Like strong culture, effective group in terms of the financials and, you know, somewhere where people are stoked to show up to work. So, well, thank you all so much for your time. There, There is so much more that we could talk about. Uh, you all have a depth of experience that could go you know, so many layers deep on all of these topics, but I hope this has been valuable for the listeners. Anything as we close that you would like to sound off on before we go? I, you know, Again, John, thank you for everything that you do. I think it's so important that we continue to have conversations that are not always easy, that not everybody agrees with every word, but we have to challenge those, you know, ideas. I think it's always a great thing, but also talk about ways that we grow in the world of nurse anesthesia and anesthesia and healthcare in general. So thank you for doing this because it, it is not easy. You have to have a shameless plug, of course, for my podcast. <laughs> yeah. And that's uh, top, top, med talk. top med talk. Is that right? Yeah. T-O-P-M-E-D-T-A-L-K. I've actually interviewed Randy a couple of times on there. And uh, some other colleagues at North Star and leaders within the CRNA world and anesthesia world. And, and again, it's, it's only because I feel like it's so important that we continue to have these conversations. And what we do in Top Mid Talk is, is really nothing political. It's all about, you know, bridging and talking about how we take better care of our patients and improving patient safety and quality of patient care and, the, and understanding the value that we in anesthesia can deliver to the healthcare system. That's so, so that's good. where I would like to kind of <laughs> end on for sure. That's what we need to do as anesthesia providers. Absolutely. Randy, any closing thoughts? Oh, well, I, I, I joined Desiree and thanking you for inviting us to, to, to have this conversation today. I guess, you know, I, I kind of go back to, you know, all the conversation we've had today is, you know, been influenced to a large degree about, you know, by what's going on in our environment in healthcare with COVID-19 and, the impact that that's had on CRNAs has been profound, not just professionally, but personally too. So uh, I want to, you know, acknowledge the amazing contributions of nurse anesthetists uh, in the last few years, two years, I guess, can't believe it's been two years already, uh, through this, you know, incredibly disruptive and trying time in healthcare. And we are consistently demonstrating our value uh, to the healthcare system and that's because we're excellent clinicians and we do good work every day. And so 
for those of you who are listening, who uh, are CRNAs, which is probably about 100% of your audience, John, I want to thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, thanks so much for both of you coming on. Really appreciate your time. Hey, y'all, John here. If you're digging the show, will you take a couple of minutes and drop a review of Anesthesia Guidebook on Apple Podcasts? Your comments and ratings help other people trust the show. Also, send a link to the podcast to your classmates and colleagues. Word of mouth is the best way for Guidebook to grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.